0: Hey, everybody, this is Rafe Telsch, and this is episode 19 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie selected specifically by our guests that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Thanks for tuning in or downloading this or whatever you want to call it. Glad to have you here for another week. Hope everybody's having a good week out there. You know, I I can't help but keep thinking back to last week's episode. I didn't really like the movie all that much, but the conversation that we had about the rules of attraction was a fantastic conversation, and it really is representative of what I want this show to be. I watched a movie that I had not seen, I had heard about but hadn't seen before and ended up having a really heartfelt conversation about the movie. It didn't matter whether or not I liked the film, but what I got out of it and what there was that could be appreciated and and even diving in a little bit into the life of my guest as well as my own connections with it. I really feel like that's representative of the work that I want to do with this podcast, and I hope that if you didn't download last week's episode just because you didn't like the movie or you haven't seen it, that you'll give it a shot because I think it's a really good episode. I think so far almost all of the episodes have been pretty good, but that one just specifically stands out. I'm also really happy that the director of the film, Roger Avery, saw on Twitter that we had talked about it. It's the second time that I've gotten a like on Twitter from the filmmaker about the movie that we've been discussing. The same thing happened with SLC Punk. And it's just really nice, even if they don't listen to the podcast, even if it doesn't mean more traffic for me, which it usually doesn't. I just like the thought that somebody made something. And that they know people are still talking about it and are still visiting this project that they worked on. It gives a sense of that timelessness of film that the art world gets to have. So taking a look at this week, however... Specifically, our Friday Inquiry. Because on last week's episode, Sean talked about the accomplishment of creating a memorable movie moment. Which I couldn't deny the power of the moment that we were talking about. So I asked this week, what is one of your favorite moments captured on film? And I got quite a variety of answers. Uh, Chris Talent started us off with the opening scene in Up. No words, just a lifetime performed and everyone lived through the heartache together. And as I responded to him... If you can't capture that same emotion in an entire movie that they managed to do in 10 minutes, what are you even doing? And it, it really is kind of a measure of the power of emotional filmmaking. Kat Milner said, The letter speech in The Breakfast Club. Chris Eklund said the Danny Boy scene in Miller's Crossing. Luis Ramirez said, Cheon running on water in Remo Williams. Brian Ward, tiny dancer in Almost Famous. Tony Jackson said the training scenes in Rocky II. Laura Huber said some kind of wonderful when Watts offers to see if Keith can deliver a kiss that kills. Michael Huber said Life of Pi, the bioluminescent scene with the the whale, which is a powerful visual scene. And Zane Telsch said Ray holding out the lightsaber to Luke in The Force Awakens. Now, my son is not old enough to be on social media, but... This was one of those rare instances where he asked me what I was doing with the podcast. Uh and he he has taken kind of an interest. He hasn't listened to an episode yet, but he wants to be a YouTuber, so he does kind of look at what I'm doing putting out shows. And he asked me what I was doing, and I told him the conversation we were having, and he said that was his answer. And he was very specific that it was Ray holding out the lightsaber at the end of The Force Awakens, not what subsequently happens in the next movie. But that's a moment that has stuck with him. So, some great moments in there. Cannot deny the power of the letter speech in The Breakfast Club or the Danny Boy scene in Miller's Crossing. A couple of movies here that I haven't seen yet. I have to admit that. I still have not seen Almost Famous. It's been on my proverbial list since it came out, and everybody went wild about Tiny Dancer, but it just hasn't been one that I've gotten around to. This week's movie falls into that same category. It's a film that I had heard about and you know, w- was aware that I kind of wanted to see, but didn't have that extra motivation to go see until it came up for this week's show, and that's 1988's Midnight Run. And part of the reason I was hesitant to see it is that I I like Robert De Niro as a gangster actor, as a tough guy actor. But his forays into comedy really haven't been that great for me. And it's a conversation that this week's guest, Aram Martinez, and I talk about, as well as how this movie has maybe changed my mindset on that. Before we get into this week's episode, though, I... I did almost forget I appear on this week's Double Edge Double Bill. A little bit of shameless self-promotion there. Uh, It's my second time on their show. This is episode 91 of Double Edge Double Bill where we talk about Oscar darlings. So if you like hearing me talk about movies, download that. We talk about Network and Bohemian Rhapsody. And their approach to film is that they talk about two movies, one good, one bad. I'll let you decide between Network and Bohemian Rhapsody, which is which. But I do recommend you download it and listen to our conversation. We had a really good time, as we did the last time I appeared on their show. And both of them have been on episodes of this podcast. Thomas, of course, was in episode number two with Walk Hard. And Adam came a little later with our look into Dark City. So, do go download that, but this week, in this show, we're talking about Midnight Run 1988 with Aaron Martinez, and here we go. Your email said that you're a struggling comedian slash actor?
1: Yes, definitely. I think uh, most actors and comedians are struggling.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That was uh, my original goal, I guess, out of high school, was to go into acting, Um, and I've I've danced with the idea of doing stand-up here and there throughout my life, but never gone through with it. So w- what's that like for you?
1: Uh, you know, it's fun. I mean, I think you should, you should try it out. I mean, I started off in improv um, and then, you know, wanted to do more solo type things, got into stand up And then was like, oh, let me try acting as well. So, you know, it's a, they're all connected somewhat. I mean, a lot, there's a lot of purists out there. They're like improv is one form. Standup is another acting is totally different. But, you know, I think they can all go back and forth, but I, you know, definitely try it out.
0: So it seems to me the large metropolitan area probably has a pretty good market for that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. You know, there's a lot of plenty of open mics here. It's not one of the the bigger markets, you know, the L.A. or New York or Chicago uh, but it's got a good, friendly scene down here, so everyone's pretty uh, uh, helpful and kind. Uh, you know, we get a lot of people from LA, and New York, and they're like, I "Can't believe how how supportive you guys are of each other." So
0: it's nice. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, and I've I've heard about a lot of projects starting to film in Atlanta a lot more often. Like I I know for a fact, Watchmen recorded quite a bit in Atlanta.
1: They did. I had you know. I had a couple of failed auditions for them, so that <laughs> I'm was sorry. Fun. Uh, well, you know that, and uh, what's the the detective one that's out now on HBO? Um,
0: uh, the detective one on HBO?
1: Yeah, what's it called?
0: Huh. Oh. all I can think of is True Detective, but that's not uh, out right now. Yeah,
1: Ben Mendelsohn and Jason Bateman are in.
0: Oh yeah, I don't remember the name of it, but uh, yeah, I know which one you're talking about.
1: Yeah, the Stephen King one. Oh, I forgot. But yeah, I mean, I've had failed auditions for those, so, you know, keep plugging away.
0: I I guess in a way, it's kind of like writing. The best advice I got from writing was actually through a podcast, but it was by a writer who, who changed their perception and... Instead of a goal of submitting X number of submissions each year, they set a goal of receiving X number of rejection letters each year. And that way they just kind of acknowledge that I'm probably going to get rejected. And if they ended up with success, then it was a good thing. But otherwise, they were their goal was the rejection.
1: Right. I think I've read that in a Stephen King's book, too, on writing, where he said he had a nail for all of his rejections letters. And then he had to keep getting a bigger nail or something. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, you had to get all the failures first before you get a yes.
0: God, his book on writing is so good. I really like that. I could read that multiple times. So who are your comedic inspirations? Like, how do you angle your comedy?
1: I do more one liners. So I really like, you know, Mitch Hedgeberg, uh, Anthony Jeseneg, wow. uh Rodney uh, Dangerfield. Uh, those Those are my big influences.
0: Yeah. Mitch Hedberg is so great. (laughs) Right?
1: Just the genius of his one-liners and everything.
0: And and some of them were so obvious that you just didn't think about it being a joke until – he. and part of it was just his delivery.
1: Right. Uh, You know, just going so quickly from one joke to the next, like you didn't have time to think about it. And he talked about that a lot. He said – I have to rush to the punchline before you guys actually get to it. It's like, yeah, it's, you know, if you thought about it just a little bit too long, you could get there first. But he just went to it, so
0: it's good. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, there's definitely some crossover with acting and comedy. But not everybody who set out for acting is set to do comedy, and not everybody who does comedy is set out to to act. But you picked you you picked a movie that actually really changed my perception in a couple of ways. Midnight Run from 1988, directed by Martin Brest, written by George Gallo, starring Robert De Niro, Charles Grodin, Yafet Cotto, John Ashton, Dennis Farina, and Joey Panfilano.
1: I love to travel by train. Yeah, what do you think this is, a class trip? A tough ex-cop. Are you always this angry? A sensitive criminal. Oh, no, no, come on, come on. Cigarettes are killers.
0: Because I gotta bring it back myself, otherwise I won't get my money.
1: They can't fly. I also suffer from acrophobia
0: and claustrophobia. I'll tell you what, if you don't cooperate, you're gonna suffer from phistophobia.
1: They're seeing
0: America the hard way. Why would you eat that? <laughs> it was a taste good. At gunpoint. Boy, wait, 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 wait. What did you do before you did this?
1: What qualified you for this? He's gaining. Oh, no, get it. He's flying. Of course he's gaining <laughs>
0: Robert De Niro It is truly in your best interest to just relax. I'm totally relaxed. Charles Grodin Two dollars, that's all you're gonna leave? That's 15%. That's 13%. These people depend on tips for a living. From the director of Beverly Hills Cop, Midnight Run. And I'll get to how this changed my perception over the course of the conversation. I always start with, how do you describe this movie to someone who hasn't seen it? How do you sell someone who hasn't seen this movie on Midnight Run?
1: Mm, How do you sell this movie? How do you sell Midnight Run? Um, Good question. Do you like sex? Do you like gore? Do you like music? This movie has none of those. (laughs) You know, it's it's a hard sell because- at its base, it's 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 a very simple concept, you know. It's a it's a journey movie, so it's it's hard. But I would say, you know, to sell it to somebody, be like, "Do you want to see Robert De Niro, maybe his first real comedic role?" I don't know. That's it's a hard. That's a hard. It's a hard part to sell.
0: Hmm. Okay. So if it's a hard sell, then why is this your choice? Why out of all the movies out there, do you pick this one to talk about today? I think it gets
1: overlooked a lot uh definitely you know being a comedic uh role for Robert De Niro uh before all the uh Meet the Fockers and everything just seeing him in a in a you know I guess no one saw him in that type of role before uh, I guess the only what was it before that he was in comedy uh Brazil he was in a little part of that mm-hmm. yep. um but other than that you know like what was it Mean Streets Raging Bull Taxi Driver and then to have him in this comedy with a uh, Charles Grodin, you know, just, I don't know. There's a lot of part of this this movie that don't seem like they should work and they just work perfectly together.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what is your history with this movie? When did you first see it?
1: Oh man. So it came out in 88. I think in the nineties, this was, you know, definitely the age of VHS tapes. And, (laughs) And this was like the small library that my dad had. And this was one of the movies and it would just be on repeat. You know, this was one of the few movies he actually bought uh, and he would just constantly watch it. So in the nineties, when I was younger, it was always in the background. And then I think I never appreciated it. Then finally got to college and I saw it again. I was like, wow, this movie has so much going for it. I could see why he loved this movie. So, it, you know, it came full back around to be like, I appreciate a lot of things now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, see, when I think of Robert De Niro, I immediately think of, you know, gangster type roles, because he certainly has played a number of those over the course of his career. And I think of the tough guy roles, because even if he's not, you know, a a gangster, he's he's playing a tough guy, you know, Travis Bickle, he's known for these tough guy roles. So when like analyze this came out and meet the parents came out, I was kind of put off by the idea of De Niro doing comedy. I just don't see him that way. And those movies, I didn't feel like showcased him very well as a comedic actor. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I had never seen this movie until you brought it to the show. And I loved it. It's probably my favorite Robert De Niro. Well, it's definitely my favorite Robert De Niro comedy. Although I do love him in Stardust. But as far as just a, a straight comedy, he's quite amazing in this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you're, you're totally right. I'm so happy that you found out or, you know, that you had the same feelings, you know, it's so great to, for someone to see it for the first time and not have expectations. And I guess that's one of the things like selling somebody on a film, you don't want to build up the expectations too high. So for someone not to see this and then they just see it and they're like, wow, he's a great comedic actor. Like the timing's perfect. The comedy duo is great. Um, yeah. So I'm happy you found out that it was a, a good, or you enjoyed it.
0: Yeah. And, you know, Charles Grodin, of course, I grew up with Charles Grodin from The Great Muppet Caper, um, which which I still hold as being a really great performance. I mean, I love him in that. But what he does here is so different because he he has to be over the top to, Mm -hmm. to act with Muppets. But here his role is so subdued. But yet he really has the heart of the movie in his scene.
1: Uh, you know, it's, it's a great battle between the two. When they're on screen together in a scene, you know, just his underplaying certain things and then De Niro just being angry. I mean, they're constantly battling. Like you would think Robert De Niro steals every scene he's in since he's, you know, such a great actor. But he put Charles Grodin with him and then there's this great battle between them back and forth and it just matches so nicely.
0: Yeah, and that's that was actually my comment to my girlfriend is I felt like Grodin stole every scene that he was in. Like he just he he didn't have to go over the top for this and yet there was just something fascinating about his character that just it's an interesting movie in that you almost don't dislike any of the bad guys or any of the characters. Like there's there's something to like about almost every single character whether they're a hired thug or the the feds or, you know, anything. It it it's really a unique movie in that way. To give a little bit of plot for those who aren't familiar with the movie, the movie follows a bounty hunter played by Robert De Niro, who is set out to capture a – he's not really a bail jumper, but a guy who stole $15 million from the mob and donated it to charity. And he's played by Charles Grodin. And it becomes a road trip movie as – Robert De Niro is supposed to get him back to Los Angeles into the the bondsman's custody. And the term midnight run comes early in the movie when the bondsman is hiring De Niro and tells him it's going to be an easy job. You go out there, you grab him, you come back. He's an accountant, he's not going to put up any kind of a fight. It's a midnight run. The idea being that it's a there and back quickly overnight type trip.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great, you know, uh, for me it's almost like a a twisted, dark, planes, trains, and automobiles, you know? Which, uh, oddly enough, uses
0: planes, trains, and automobiles. Yeah, this this movie does
1: too. Uh, So, you know, like, yeah, they start off in a plane and then have to go to trains and then cars and then back to planes. Uh, You know, but talking about just the simple, like, you know, you, you did say it, like, Midnight Run, it seems like the simple job. That whole opening scene just sets the, it's a story before the story. So he's getting a guy... He runs into trouble. Marvin comes and gives him some trouble, and then he takes the guy back to jail and That's what the whole movie is. you know it's about him finding a guy, him running into trouble, and then taking him back to jail, yeah um, and
0: Marvin is a fellow bounty hunter who apparently quite often gets dispatched on the same jobs. As De Niro's character Jack, yeah, and he shows up so many times in this movie that I started referring it to it in my notes as the Marvin Factor, <laughs> because it was like it's the perfect moment, and then suddenly you have the Marvin Factor where things go wrong.
1: <laughs> right. It's like how how can we make it harder for Jack to progress in this story? It's like, oh, okay. Well, let's add the feds. Let's add cops. Let's add. Bounty hunters. Let's add the mob. Uh, let's add his family history into it, just to just to pile on more and more to poor Jack Walsh.
0: And, and I want to put a pin on that family history thing for a minute. But the maneuvering of all of these different organizations, whether it's the mob or the feds or Marvin or our protagonists, is so skillfully done, and they're so often coming. The the conflict is created by one of those other groups showing up but it's often resolved by one of the other groups showing up. So the feds you know managed to get their hands on Jack and Duke, but the mafia hitmen that were about to take out the two who were foiled by the mob decide to go ahead with their attack and so the fed and the mob are so busy with each other that that Jack can get away or the mafia hitmen are about to grab Jack and the Marvin factor enters into the picture. But it's so skillfully done and even though it is almost repetitive, it doesn't feel repetitive because it's like, okay, who's going to show up and screw up the plan now?
1: I totally agree with you. It's almost like uh, I'm sure you might have read uh, "Save the Cab" by Blake Snyder, um, or is that by Blake? Blake? Um, but anyways, like you know, there's this uh, story sort of uh, archetype called like the fool triumphant, and uh-huh. not that Jack's a, a fool, but you know, every time something happens, it's for the best.
0: And you see that in the very first scene of this movie. For some reason lately, I've been really attracted to first lines of movies. And the first line of this is, 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 you know, Oh shit. But it's because he has that luck that he's picking the lock and he drops something. And as he bends down to get it, the door is blasted away by a shotgun blast that if he hadn't dropped that, he'd be dead.
1: No, you're totally right. Yeah. and That's, you know, like I said, that first, that first story before the movie, it just sets it up so well, you know, he's, he's skilled. He knows how to pick a lock, but, you know, he drops it, you know, the whole door just blows
0: away in front of his head, uh, but likely he doesn't get hit. Right. So, yeah, it's um, I, I just found it really skillfully the way that they use the different organizations and, and Yafet Koto heads the FBI. He's got a hell of a presence. Oh, yeah. uh, Dennis Farina is the mob boss, and I just cannot ever get enough Dennis Farina he is so <laughs> fantastic especially when he's playing a gangster role which is ironic because he was a Chicago cop right he was he he was in reality what Jack's character was in the past
1: mm-hmm. I mean you're, you're right both those characters are amazingly placed in this film uh yeah definitely as a, a gangster yeah I love him
0: yeah So critically, the movie, uh, you know, I first looked at Metacritic. It sits at 78% at Metacritic. That's pretty popular, uh, pretty positive. It's at 96% at Rotten Tomatoes. Incredibly positive response to the movie. I did manage to find one negative review written by a top critic at Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, There's only one negative review. So Taking a quick look at, at the reviews, uh, on the positive side, we have Roger Ebert. I always love to bring in Roger Ebert. And he, Ebert wrote, This sounds like a formula, and it is a formula, but Midnight Run is not a formula movie because the writing and acting make these two characters into specific quirky individuals whose relationship becomes more interesting even as the chase grows more predictable. Whoever cast De Niro and Groden must have had a sixth sense for the chemistry they would have. They work together so smoothly and with such an evident sense of fun that even their silences are intriguing. Uh, on the flip side, Hal Hinson of the Washington Post writes, But much as he might try, Breast can't masquerade this mainstream Hollywood studio picture as an offbeat little character piece. In this film, and his previous effort, Beverly Hills Cop, Brest is called on to work with material that doesn't seem to interest him or allow him to apply his revitalizing odd- oddness. As a result, the shootouts and chase scenes are lusterless and impersonal, as they were merely to be dispensed with so he could get to what interested him. In places, it's clear that Brest would like to overturn his road movie buddy-buddy format, when, at the Duke's urging, Walsh visits his ex-wife in Chicago to borrow enough money to get home, the director attempts to up emotional ante by having him encounter the daughter he hasn't seen for nine years. But the material here is no less hackneyed than in the chase scenes. So, thoughts on those reviews?
1: I mean, I think the the second critic probably hadn't – well, you know, Martin Brest's uh, famous Geely hadn't come out yet, so
0: <laughs> you know,
1: there, was, there wasn't a – There wasn't a bad one to give me, because what do you do after this? we Right before you did Beverly Hills Cop, and then right after he did Sin of a Woman. You know, there's some fair things in there, uh, but definitely overwhelmingly positive. I I definitely love uh, Ebert's review. You know, this is a formula movie, and that's why it's a hard sell, because it sounds so boring sometimes. You're like, oh, yeah, it's a bounty hunter. I mean, we've seen so many bounty hunter movies come up. What's that Jennifer Aniston one with uh, Gerard Butler? Oh God, I forgot about that movie and I'd like to go back to forgetting about it. Yeah. <laughs> Is it just called the bounty hunter? Or bounty? Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. But you know, like you, you say, oh yeah, it's a bounty hunter movie uh, where they had to take someone back and it's like, oh, okay, well, it's a journey movie, you know, and they got to go cross country. Oh, okay. No, but they're really good in it. And so it's a hard sell, but definitely I agree with the formula. The The criticism, I don't know. I mean, that. That's a really, really emotional scene in the middle of the film. I agree. Ooh, almost halfway in, fifty minutes or something, and then you get this just drop, like, and those silences, which they talk about between the two of them. Uh-huh. There's that silence of Robert De Niro looking at his daughter. And you're just like, oh my goodness, like this is emotional, touching.
0: Well, and from the moment that that his ex wife opens the door, mm-hmm. it suddenly you know as you said you know robert de niro's character is very angry there's a lot of yelling there's a lot of of cursing a- and the second that door opens de niro becomes soft right there's there's it's in, like to the to it doesn't take a very perceptive viewer to see immediately that he still loves her Mm-hmm. There is still emotion there. And we haven't been given their big backstory. There's lots of things to, to kind of read between the lines in that scene that are confirmed later on by a conversation between De Niro and Groden. But it's very evident that he didn't let go of this relationship easily and maybe still hasn't let go of it. Oh, that's very true.
1: I mean, you don't get angry at people like you don't love. You know, there's there's no reason to put that kind of uh, emotional uh, baggage or you know, development towards him. So he definitely still loves this woman. I mean, the the watch, he still has the watch on. Um, oh, God, yeah. I mean, and that's, I love, like, there's so many things that just take the whole movie to realize. His watch is one of them. He has this old, cracked, broken Timex. Well, I don't know if you know it's a Timex. Um, and the script is a Timex is what they describe it as.
0: Oh, yeah. okay. Uh,
1: Yeah. But, you know, he's playing with it. It's never working. And finally, he tells him, like, yeah, my wife gave this to me. I was always late. First thing she ever gave to me. And you're like, oh, he's he's hanging on to the past. It's a man living in the past.
0: Well, and that's and that kind of defines his character. I mean, he's a bounty hunter because he was a cop and he uh, all you know about him early on in the film is he's no longer a cop anymore because he wasn't very popular there. And you don't know why. Um, and again, that scene with the ex-wife, you can quickly read between the lines because he makes a lot of comments about – she's she's trying to rush him out of the house because his her husband is going to be home. He's a cop. Uh, he was a lieutenant when Jack left town. He's now a captain. And his response is, uh, oh, well, I don't have a bribe to give him. And it's like, <laughs> oh, he's dirty. Yeah. And then you quickly realize, wait a minute, if Jack wasn't popular and you're hearing all of this about the corrupt cops – It means that he wasn't popular because he didn't play ball and he was the only clean one. Mm -hmm. And he does confirm that in a later conversation, but it's like, it's this nice piece of character work that isn't force fed down your throat.
1: Right. It's not at the very beginning where he says, I'm a good cop. I put away bad people and, you know, I never took a bribe. You know, he doesn't, you're right. Again, it's throughout the whole film this story unfolds and unravels. And I guess if that's one criticism I have it, if it's like, there's a, there's a lot of big coincidences, you know, uh, that happen. Like he just so happens to get the bail bonds or the, you know, he gets the bounty on this one guy that connects all the way to his past in Chicago. I mean, but you got to give yourself at least one, you know, like, Oh, okay. Take it.
0: Yeah. And I, I I didn't feel like that was too large a coincidence because Eddie almost flat out says that that's why he wants Jack to go on this bounty, so it it it's almost intentional as opposed to coincidental. I can see that, yeah, definitely. So to answer your question about breast, breast did Beverly Hills Cop, and then he did this, then scent of a woman, meet Joe Black and Geely. Oh, those last two. <laughs> yeah, and hasn't done anything since two thousand three <laughs> with Geely. Not, not that you can necessarily blame him. That's kind of where you just want to escape and disappear. He's probably become, you know, a, a bounty hunter in some small town or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean,
1: he's no Joel Schumacher, so I mean, yeah, he's still got some good stuff in here.
0: You know, Joel, Joel Schumacher's still putting out films, and we just <laughs> want him to stop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh. so yeah, great cast. As I said, Dennis Farina uh, is the head of the mob. He he has some great. Threats, like it seems like everybody he's talking to, he's threatening. You know, I'm gonna come over there and beat your head in with this phone, which ironically he does in another movie. Right? Um, you know, he he tells his thugs, "If I have to come down there, I'm gonna put a blowtorch to you."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All these, just but they're they sounds so vile coming from Farina. I just I love the way that that man eats up a scene. Uh, Joey Pantaloni. I didn't mention earlier. Joey Pants. Um, yeah. Joey Pants. He playing Eddie, the guy, the bail bondsman who hires Jack and and Marvin, and is continually playing them against each other because he just he doesn't care. He just wants this guy back. He doesn't care which one of them does it. But it's Joey Pants and a young Joey Pants. <laughs> hair, hair, Joey yeah. Pants. Yeah. <laughs> With hair on his head and. On his face. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he
1: looks like such a sleazeball as a Eddie Moscow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then he has his uh, assistant who you quickly realize can't be trusted just through some of his behavior. And then quickly you realize, oh, he's working for the mob. Mm -hmm. So it's it's even just that little piece of having his assistant working for the mob. So you have that going on. So he's going out and reporting. So Jack, of course, is reporting back to Eddie. But everything he's reporting is being heard by his assistant who's reporting it to the mob. Meanwhile, you have the FBI outside with a phone tap. So every phone call Jack is give, doing to give progress to show that he's doing what he's supposed to be doing is also giving his position away. Right. And I just – I, I, I want to say I actually did yell at the screen, but I, I wanted to yell at the screen, stop checking in. <laughs> yeah. Right around the time Jack finally figured it out. And it was like, oh, okay. He's on the same page then. Great
1: perfect timing. Yeah, cuz you would you would be sick of it if there was one more beat in there like okay, obviously you have to know now that someone's turning on you. But definitely, yeah, you're right. It was the perfect timing in the film in the story where he's like, oh, okay, we realize that he gets the information from Alonzo Mosley's uh FBI car. He sees the information and gets
0: it." Yeah, which I I I again, I mean it just it helps put all the puzzle pieces in the right place in the right way. And I just, I think the script is brilliant in that regard that it, it knows how to move the pieces around in the right direction. Right. And it never feels to me, it never, you, you said coincidence earlier to me, it never felt like coincidence to me. It, it felt very well. And I've said the word a, new, a couple of times now, but skilled.
1: I think you're very right. It, it does. It's very skilled. And I think I only say coincidental just because I've seen it so many times. So well. if I had to pick something apart, I'd be like, okay, why, why now? You know, like, sure, this is 10 years later and you're going after this guy. But it's also one of the best things. Like when you have a story, like you want it to wrap around and unravel and have these bigger consequences to your past and to your future.
0: So who do you favor more? uh, De Niro's Jack or Charles Grodin's uh, Duke? Oh, man. Who do I favor more? Who do I like more or who am I? Who, Who do you like more? Oh, man. Jonathan Mardukas, the Duke. Which is, I think it was Ebert, but it may have been one of the other reviews I, I, I read, pointed out just how completely wrong that nickname of Duke is. And obviously, it's just a shortened form of his last name of, of Mardukas, but it, it just so doesn't fit him to be called Duke.
1: <laughs> right. It doesn't at all. Uh, and, you know, one of the things, they're both named Jack or John. You know? Right. And then Walsh, W, Mardukas, M, you know, it's sort of like the reverse of each other. So J W J
0: M. Oh, that's uh-huh. a good point.
1: I mean, I don't know if that, you know, this is me just thinking about it after so many years. Like, oh, that's they sort of seem to be, you know, you know, the odd couple type of thing. It's mismatched duo that has to go on this road trip. But I think you said it earlier, like there's so many great characters like uh, Dennis Farina, you know, just in his little scenes. And then John Ashton, uh, Koto, just all of them just steal the scenes like when they're on the screen.
0: Yeah, I mean, this really is, you know, almost a game of hot potato as to who can steal the scene. It's it is I mean, and De Niro is great in it, but it is not De Niro's movie by any means. There's a scene where Kato comes in as the head of the FBI and he's just walking in the room and he's obviously upset. And it's just like every eye is on him for good reason, because here's a really big dude who's angry and is just quiet and it's like he just owns the scene
1: yeah and there's so many he owns the scene there's so many great jokes with him um the sunglasses the the cigarettes (laughs) you know so he has sunglasses (laughs) with uh jack and then he has the cigarettes with uh john ashton or or marvin uh, dorfler
0: uh, I love Marvin's line when he does it. I think that it's, it's the second or the third time that he steals Marvin's cigarettes. And Marvin says to him,
1: Why don't you quit? It'd be cheaper for both of us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, man.
1: No, uh, that, that line always gets me. Because he Alonzo Mosley just takes the cigarettes, doesn't even think about it, and he doesn't, doesn't even faze them. Uh, yeah, again, there's those little things, those little rivalries between these characters that just have, you know, a few scenes.
0: Yeah. But enough, like when De Niro leaves his sunglasses on the steering wheel of Cato's car, which he's stolen when he leaves the sunglasses there to be found later on. And he just says it's an inside joke between the two of us, but the audience is in on the joke and Mm -hmm. it just creates a good laugh. I mean, that's, that was a funny moment.
1: No, that was a hilarious moment. Yeah. I found it hilarious. And then later on, he slides the glasses back to him in the cafe so he's had these glasses the entire time, just to right. give back to to Jack.
0: Yeah, and the audience again, it creates this nice little laugh before the camera switches to the feds, and it's like, "Oh, Jack, you're in trouble now." You know, it's. I, I was joking there there's a numerous chase scenes through the movie, but you get to that off road chase. And there's specifically a shot of kind of the carnage of vehicles after that chase is done. And I jokingly said to my girlfriend, he's going to need that $110,000 just to pay for damages that he's done along the way for this job. Right? They
1: do the, uh, the helicopter shot or they pull up from it and you see like how many cop cars are just, you know, speckled throughout the desert now. And there's just, you know, 15, 20 that have just been, you know, lost in the desert and
0: I, but I loved it. I mean, it was hilarious. Oh, great scene, great chase scene. I I love that interpretation, and, and who knows if it's intentional or not. But the idea that it's Jack W and John M I, that, that they're opposites. I love that. That's that's a really interesting take.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I think it goes back to thinking about well, how Stephen King does his stuff. He always uses like JC for his main characters, or starts off with that for Jesus Christ. And I was right. thinking about initials, and then I was like, oh, maybe it's a you know a mirror image type of thing.
0: Yeah. But their chemistry is so good in their scenes together. And, and it's, and it's not just because they're opposites because ideally their chemistry, you know, ideally because they're opposites, Jonathan would just sit there quietly while Jack rants and raves, but it, it's a give and take. And I really loved some of their scenes together, even just as simple as being on the airplane at the beginning of the film when he's taking him back and jonathan can't fly mm. and groden plays out that panic in a way that is is both humorous but also really sympathetic that suddenly you feel bad for this guy you want him even though he's the bad guy he's the prisoner you know you want him to get off that plane
1: yeah exactly it, it, you hit upon it perfectly you know it's a great duo but they're not overly doing it. like it's not it's not jack lemon and, and uh Oh, my God. Who's the other odd couple? Yeah. Walter Mathau and Jack Lemmon. Right. There's not one that's a total neurotic and the other one that's a total, you know, slob. And then they have to deal with each other. But you're definitely right. There's definitely they definitely both have power in a scene.
0: Yeah. And then later on in the film, you have the moment where Jonathan kind of steals the stick and takes the stolen Fed badge to get the money. Right. Oh, what's what a great scene that is, right? I mean, it's just but it's and it's a completely different level of playing the character than the panic scene earlier or the soft scene they have uh, just a couple minutes later in the train car. But it's still such a great scene.
1: You're totally right, because then you get to see that. Oh, you know what? This character has been lying the entire time. He obviously has skills and he's been playing Jack the entire time. You know, with this soft, like, oh, I'm nervous. I can't do this. And now he can impersonate an FBI agent as well.
0: Like he asked the one guy, you seen any strangers? Are you from around here? Hmm. You know, it's just it's like he just lets out these little grunts and hums about things that are like they if he was actually a Fed, it would make him it would make it look like he's considering this information when really all he's doing is just, you know, buying time.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah, he plays it so nicely. So, yeah, I mean, if you just came into that scene, not seeing the rest of the movie, you would like, oh, this is the FBI agent and they're doing this Uh, because you see Jack behind him like he stumbles and he knocks into Charles Grodin uh, and he looks concerned like he's looking over his shoulder. He's like, what's going on here? Yeah, great
0: scene. The other thing about their relationship, just something I noticed over the course of the movie, is. It's interesting how Jack puts Duke in the car each time, because sometimes he's practically throwing him in the car and slamming the door. But like when he comes out of his ex-wife house, he opens the door slowly. When he sits down, he moves his jacket so the door won't close on his jacket. And it's, you know, the softer closing of the door. It's almost the way he's putting Duke in the car is reflecting how their relationship is growing. And side note, the daughter coming out to give him all of the money she has is an absolutely heartbreaking moment, and I can't believe that that second critic didn't feel like that was an an a honest emotional beat for the story.
1: Totally. To- oh man that that daughter scene. I mean, of course you got you know Danny Elfman just jazzing it up with his music perfectly. Uh, but it's just so heartbreaking to see the daughter come out and be like, "Here's here's all the money I made. Here you have a dad that I haven't seen in nine years."
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I forget. Yeah, Elfman's score is fantastic. Very non-traditional Elfman score for that time period because this is you know when he's doing you know Batman and Beetlejuice and all these very similar sounding. I mean, I, I love his scores, but there is a similarity to those kinds of scores that this movie is completely separated from.
1: No, that's a good point. I think I guess I guess both those were Tim. He has like a Tim Burton sound. and right. then you know, this is totally like 80s sound, but not Tim Burton.
0: Yeah, no. And this is, and I, I read that he actually came up with lyrics for the theme that he performed with Oingo Boingo, his band at the time. Um, i didn't hear it but yeah that's that's my understanding
1: oh, i would have loved to hear hear that oh man it almost reminds me of the the john carpenter band like him playing uh the pork chop express stuff
0: right right or stephen king yeah oh yeah, yeah he's a man. We, we keep coming back to stephen king oddly enough for a movie that's not a stephen <laughs> king thing but he's in a band with freaking dave barry yeah I mean, how does that combination happen?
1: <laughs> you just get two grades and it's like, hey, let's uh let's just do a band. It's like, okay.
0: Yeah. But anyway, sorry, back to our movie here. I sorry for going down the sidetrack. Um, Jack and John, that scene on the the train in the train car when Jack tells him about the watch. And and you really again see the heart of this character. One, that scene, the beginning of that scene was largely improvised, apparently. But it just it really connects these characters, which is interesting because just a few minutes before Jonathan was trying to get away. You know, he shuts the door in Jack's face and tries to keep Jack from getting on the train. But then not on, on screen, not five minutes later, you have this really heartfelt scene between the two men.
1: Yeah, it really goes places. You're right. I can you know, I didn't know it was improvised, but you can definitely see that uh, Charles Groden just. Uh, jack walsh isn't speaking to him so uh, jonathan mark dukas talks both roles so he's asking himself and then responding as jack um so you know it's funny that he's they do that weird chicken uh jokes about uh which chicken they would have sex with so it doesn't surprise right. me that that's improvised but just starting from that breaking the ice and then where the scene goes. I love scenes like that. And then it becomes this really emotional scene where he breaks down and he
0: tells them about the watch. Yeah. How do you feel about Marvin changing beats for a minute?
1: I really like John Ashton. So I guess I love him in this, in this film. I mean, probably my favorite role of him is uh, in some kind of wonderful. Oh yeah. You know, the dad in the John Hughes film. Uh, But he is just so gruff in this. Yeah, you know, just from an opening, he loves to think he's so smart. And then he takes the picture of uh the Duke later on. He's <laughs> like, oh, I can't believe myself. I'm I'm so smart. And it has the uh
0: the name, the name <laughs> of the hotel. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: you know, and then him and uh Alonzo Mosley, like they have a great chemistry. Him and Jack have a great chemistry. But you you, you hit upon it earlier too that you don't hate any of the uh, forces of antagonism. You don't hate any of the bad guys, you know. Except other, like, for
0: maybe Dennis Farina's character.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's. Yeah, I mean, he's he's got great lines. You're like you sort of wish you could, you know, talk to people like that and have that power. But you're, oh yeah, right.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I found Marvin kind of charming. You know, I it, it was frustrating when he shows up, especially you know in the the big kind of act there at the airport that he suddenly shows up and it's like that that was where I called it the Marvin factor because it was like everything was going so well and then oh right there's another entity involved in this but I I found his his kind of rapport with De Niro's character to be I mean they're rivals but there's almost a respect for each other. It, it kind of, it reminded me, and I believe this movie came out after midnight run, but it reminded me of Val Kilmer and Graham green in Thunderheart, oh, where right. they're constantly flipping each other off. But here, instead of flipping each other off, it's just CNLA. LA, you know, but, and there's like, there was a nice callback later on in the film when he, when he finally does manage to take uh, John away from Jack, he slams the car door into Jack. And that's something that we saw in the opening scene. That's kind of one of his moves. And I thought that was a nice little callback to how he does things. And, but even when he takes Duke away from Jack, it, it's not personal. He's not, he he doesn't hurt Jack more than he needs to in order to incapacitate him for the victory.
1: Right. And again, you know, the great callbacks, he does it at the beginning uh, with the car door. He does it later on. He's been tricked twice before by Jack about looking somewhere else. And the one time he needs to look somewhere when the mobsters are coming with guns, he doesn't. So there's great callbacks between that. You know, when I was reading the script, actually, the Marvin character dies when uh, he goes to give Mark Dukas to the mobsters. Like, they kill him right. in. And I was like, man, that the airport scene would not have been a great had Marvin not been there.
0: Yeah. They decided that that was going to take away from the tension that it would add some additional tension to that last scene just by having Marvin around. So that, that earned him the, the, the right to live there.
1: (laughs) Oh, he has, he has one of the best lines right before that where he's getting his ticket. Uh, he talks to the ticketing agent. He's like,
0: who's uh, played by the director. Oh, is it right? Yeah, that's Martin Brass who plays the ticketing agent.
1: I had no idea. Like you just see him over the shoulder. Uh that's a that's a good note. But yeah, he looks at him. He's like uh, smoking or non smoking. He's smoking a cigarette. Blows out. He's like take a wild guess. I'm
0: like oh. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess going back to to Jack and and Jonathan. Uh, you know, again their rapport. Like one of the phone calls into Joey pants, you know, he's, he's shouting, he's shouting threats and he's like, you know, if he doesn't come with me, I will shoot him and dump him in the swamp. And then he puts the phone aside and just shakes his head at, at Grodin. Nah, I'm not actually going to do that to you. (laughs) I love that scene. Yeah. That's a good one too. So even, even that, and that's, that's relatively, I guess that's about midway of the movie, but even then you're starting to see that there's a connection between them. So that, that final act I guess the conclusion of the movie really surprised me because it's not in De Niro's character to let him go. And yet it's honest. It's earned over the course of the movie, by the way their relationship connects that he gets him to LA not to turn him in, but only because he wanted to prove that he could do it.
1: Yeah. I I definitely like that word you said earned. It's definitely earned. It's not just something like we started here on a story circle and then we had to have this character change. It's definitely earned throughout the entire film. You know, he has his arc and then he comes back around. He gets what he wants. He got him to LA by before midnight. And then he actually gets his other want the money, you know, but he actually gets a friend too along the way and he lets mm-hmm. him go.
0: Yeah. And I, I totally was expecting, and I'm glad they didn't do this. But you know, both of those critics talked about it being somewhat formulaic, and I was expecting the idea that De Niro's character is always late, and so his ex-wife set that watch half an hour ahead, and he's kept the watch. I would bet he's kept it set half an hour ahead. I was totally waiting for him to get to L.A. to realize he was late. And then to realize the watch was set half an hour ahead and he actually made it on time. And I'm glad the movie doesn't play out that way. But that was one of those predictable gags that they didn't end up using.
1: Wow. Yeah, I never thought about that actually. Yeah. The the time never came into play. The watch comes into play, but never the the time being being
0: late. Oh, that's a good call. It's a good okay. note. So yeah, I do feel like that last scene is earned, even though it was unexpected. Yeah, it just it didn't play out the way I expected the end of the movie to to play out, which I I think is good, because especially when you're getting criticisms of predictability, I think it's nice to have a movie where the ending isn't 100 percent predictable.
1: Exactly. And then he still gets all of his ones. Mardukas is still another main character, and he gets his one of being free, Um, you know, and I love that line. You know, they had that exchange in the airport. Um, I knew you had money. I didn't know you had money. (laughs) <laughs> because Arthur Mark Dukas had $300,000 on him, but throughout the entire traveling, he only had, what, a couple hundred?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the two of them barely had any money after he bought you know the tickets because, I mean, he gets, what, 1200 at the beginning of the movie, but he goes through that relatively fast. Right. They're traveling literally on pennies and stuff. That's why they have to jump onto the train and do the the Pretend FBI scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's a that's another
1: great joke throughout the movie that you finally get at the very end. You know, at the bus station when they're trying to get tickets, uh, he asks him like, "How much money do you have?" And Marduka says, "A lot." He goes through his pockets, pulls out of a, a hundred. He's like, "You call that a lot of money?" And then to, feel, uh, to realize at the very end, he had three hundred thousand dollars on him the whole time.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and uh, if jack had trusted him more earlier in the movie you wouldn't have had that problem because he could have just said can you give me some money but since he insisted on keeping him handcuffed since he didn't trust him he he kind of becomes his own enemy in a way yeah
1: he gets in his own way um as long as with everything else that gets in his way you know from you know ticketing agents to mob to everything but yeah he definitely gets in his own way too
0: so in 2010, De Niro announced that he was working on a sequel for this, which has not come to fruition. How do you feel about a sequel to this movie? How would wow. you like to see these characters further down the road? Wow.
1: Well, I'm not sure if you know, have you seen it? But you've seen the the made for TV movies with this, right?
0: I have not. <laughs> so
1: there was three made for TV movies that came out in the 90s called like uh, what was it? another Midnight Run, Return to Midnight Run, and. I don't know, midnight runaround or something. Oh God. Yeah. Uh you know, the, and Jackwash is played by uh Christopher McDonald.
0: Christopher McDonald.
1: He is the when was the last time you watched Billy
0: Madison? I've never seen Billy Madison, believe oh. it or not. Oh, I know who Christopher McDonald is. I just uh just we just talked about um SLC Punk a Ooh. couple. Yeah. episodes ago and he plays the the dad in that yeah okay
1: yeah so he plays yeah so but yeah throwing all that out i'm not going by that canon uh 2010 working on a revival of this man i you know it might be good to have a role reversal where Jackson trouble and mardukas has to get him out
0: i i don't think i'd like to see it i mean I, again <laughs> I, I i'm a new recruit to this movie, you know, as far I'm a new convert, newly converted to this movie. So I, I don't guess I really have much of a say in that, but I, I just, I feel like this one stands alone so well.
1: No, you're definitely true. Like, and that's a, that's a problem with a lot of sequels. I'm sure, you know, like it's they're very forced. The characters have already made their arc and changed. And now you're going to put them in a second film where they've unlearned everything they learned in the first film and then had to go through the arc
0: again exactly so i can do that yeah it worked the first time let's recreate it the second time even though it in theory if if the conclusion of the first movie taught the characters anything they wouldn't go through it a second time
1: yeah it's like uh this is batman again he's got to get over his uh, parents death again
0: i was gonna go with the hangover but yeah that's that's <laughs> a, that's apt as well <laughs> the hangover yeah that's perfect all right, anything else you want to talk about before we move into uh, the end credits here?
1: Uh, no. I mean, I'm just so excited that you enjoyed watching the film and then you just you took away a lot of the the fun things that I've liked for the film too, you know, the little the funny bits, the characters interaction with each other. So, I'm I'm really glad.
0: Oh, good. Yeah. All right. Well, we go with the algorithm says these are movies that various algorithms say you may like if you liked Midnight Run. This is kind of a lightning round. You just give a quick response. Yes, you like the movie. No, you don't like the movie. No, you don't understand how the hell that's connected to Midnight Run, that kind of thing. So first up, get Carter. Uh, I could see
1: both versions of that. The I guess the Stallone one and the uh, the original. Yeah, I can see that.
0: Okay. Uh, Die
1: Hard with a Vengeance. Die Hard with a Vengeance. Yeah, I can see that. Do you like it? Uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a, it's a fun film. I guess, what is that? The movie started off as just a movie called Simon Says, and then just- Right. He was just added to it. Uh, there's some fun stuff. I mean, Jeremy Irons. I mean, again, there is uh, there's some great scenes.
0: Second only to Alan Rickman as far as villains oh, go in the Die yeah. Hard series. <laughs> a far
1: a far second. I mean, Rickman is just so high up there. Yeah.
0: The untouchables. Untouchables.
1: I mean, I think the only reason they have that is because De Niro's in it, but I don't think it's in the same categories really.
0: Yeah, that was my kind of my response too. Uh in Bruise.
1: Uh yeah, I can see that. I mean, I guess that one's a little bit more depressing. But. Yeah. <laughs> a but I bit. love it. it. Yeah, it's a good it's a great movie. But yeah, it's definitely more depressing. I mean, there's some funny stuff in there. All right. Beverly Hills Cop.
0: Yes. I have never seen Beverly Hills Cop. Really? Yeah. Somehow just kind of never hit my radar. Wow.
1: You're going to have fun with that one. Someone's going to have a lot of fun doing that with you because, man, you're going to f- I think Stallone was supposed to be in that one originally. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs>
0: All right. A movie I've never heard before called Dragged Across Concrete. Yep. Nope.
1: Never heard of it.
0: (laughs) It's from 2018, so it's not even that old. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, there's a lot of independent stuff out there and who knows? All right. Now's when we get a little weird. Um, Michael Clayton. Michael Clayton.
1: No, I don't see why that's on there. I don't think if, you know, that's definitely not a comedy. Definitely not in the same vein.
0: Yeah. Night Shift.
1: Night shift. Now was that with, um, Michael Keaton. Okay. Yeah. 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 Where well, they, they're in the morgue and then they start yes. a prostitution ring They're They become pimps. Yes. Essentially. Um, I mean, it's a fun, stupid movie. Uh, it's not as smart as midnight run. I have to give that, I don't know. <laughs>
0: All Maybe. right. Two more
1: <laughs> enemy of the state. Enemy of the state. Huh. I don't think it's in the same vein. I mean, it's an okay movie. And finally, Commando. Commando. Oh man, <laughs> no,
0: <laughs> no. I don't. I have no idea where that connection comes from. But hey, eighties. I mean, what else? I guess. Yeah, that's it. All right. We always end with the pop quiz. Four questions that are inspired by or related to the movie selected. So these are about Midnight Run. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. Uh, First up, number one, uh, kind of in alternate worlds or dimensions, versions of this movie that could have existed. Several other actors were considered or suggested for the role of Jonathan Duke Mardukas. Which of the following was not considered? A, Bruce Willis, B, Michael Keaton, C, Robin Williams, or D, Cher? Oh, man.
1: I know it's not Cher because I think I heard that before because it was so off the wall. I think I'm going to choose Robin Williams.
0: Uh Paramount Pictures originally had the the rights to this movie and they wanted share. They wanted to change the gender. And when they kind of refused to do that, they wanted Robin Williams, who oh. was coming off the success of Goodnight Vietnam or Good Morning Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Keaton was the one who was not considered for Mardukas. Really? yeah Hmm. Bruce Willis there's actually a huge list of actors that were considered for the role but Bruce Willis was a consideration Robin Williams and Cher were also considerations number two similarly what actor was not suggested or considered for the role of Jack Walsh a Arnold Schwarzenegger b Michael Keaton c Don Johnson or d Alec Baldwin
1: Mm. d Alec Baldwin
0: Correct. He was actually being considered for Serrano, but not for Jack Walsh. Whoa, man,
1: that was a total guess. I had no knowledge. Okay, great.
0: (laughs) I could see Michael Keaton or Don Johnson playing the character, not as well as De Niro. I can't see Arnold Schwarzenegger playing (laughs) in this movie at
1: all. Yeah, I get it. You know, the 80s, they were just trying to put him in everything, I guess.
0: All right, this one's a little more of a deep dive. Number three, the film incorporates several actors who had worked with De Niro on previous projects who had not shared the screen with De Niro before. A, Jack Kehoe, who plays Eddie's assistant, Jerry. B, Robert Miranda, one of Serrano's thugs. C, Philip Baker Hall, Serrano's attorney. Or D, Bob Maroff, the taxi driver at the end.
1: Wow. I mean, there's a lot of Italian guys that he's played with. (laughs) I would say the taxi driver.
0: No, the taxi driver was actually on screen with him in Taxi Driver. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I mean, that seems (laughs) obvious. Okay.
0: Yeah. Jack Kehoe, who plays uh, Jerry, and Robert Miranda, who's one of Serrano's thugs, were both with De Niro in Untouchables, and Bob Moroff was in Taxi Driver. It was Philip Baker Hall, Serrano's attorney. Mm, Okay. All right. Last question. I know you're going to get this one right. Despite the amount of guns and shooting, all of the main characters survived the movie, but the original script saw one character not quite as lucky. Which character was originally slated to die? Oh, Dorfler. The Dorf. Yep. Yep, Marvin. So there you go. All right, man, where can people find you? What do you want to promote? Uh, I want to promote this
1: podcast. This has been fun. Have not seen this. Definitely, you know, get it where you can. This is fun. Um, You know, look for me on Instagram at Aramnez, A-R-A-M-N-E-Z. Look for some of my jokes and definitely follow this
0: podcast. All right. Thank you, man. I really appreciate this. This is one of those. I've I've actually had a string of movies lately that I didn't like as much that I've and, and still had good conversations about. But this one, it was really fun to kind of watch this and end it and be like, appreciate De Niro on a whole nother level than I have. And I really it really has transformed kind of what I think about De Niro.
1: That's great. I'm I appreciate you taking the time to watch this film and I'm glad you enjoyed it.
0: So that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. You can find me at Taln Hess on Twitter, T-A-L-N-H-E-S-S, or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter, on Facebook where at Have Not Seen This Podcast or you can email me at have not seen this at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show. So you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's episode where we go out for a night on the town with me and my droogs for a bit of the old ultra violence. This podcast is available on Google play, Apple podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or you can use the RSS feed to subscribe through whatever podcatcher you prefer. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, although I appreciate it if you just help spread the word and help me build up more listeners. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Aaron Martinez for providing this week's conversation. Hey, maybe you have a movie you'd like to discuss, one that means something to you or you're particularly astonished when you discover people have not seen. we we'll come be a guest on the show. Head over to havenotseenthis.podbean.com, click the Be a Future Guest button, submit the form there, and we'll get you set up for a future episode. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This.